domestic pressure, plying under his wife's planning and scolding, and quick to wash his hands of the outcome. Now, this passage has many great lessons for us today, but today I want us to look at three or four things. One, we, like Abraham, like to take matters into our own hands. In the first, first, verse, first few verses in this section, we see Abraham's engaged in action, which is a big mistake. In this passage, we learn that God is sovereign, and we are not, and we have a hard time accepting that. Let me say that again. In this passage, we learn that God is sovereign, and we are not, and we have a hard time accepting that. This passage clearly sets forth the sovereignty of God in Abraham's situation. Abraham and Sarai had been waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises. They heard great promises, great nation, descendants, all this stuff, and they're like, yeah, they're pumped up. Five weeks later, because we, we want it to happen immediately. So like next day, they're like, God, what's up? Right? A week later, God, what's up? A month later, God, what's up? A year later, they're like, okay, they don't talk to God anymore. And it didn't happen. So Sarai came about this very plan, very common, very normal for the plan of, of the culture of her day. In the Code of Hammurabi and the other various common cultural expressions of legal form and social custom that day, what Sarai did was normal, actually. If a woman was not able to bear a child for her husband, it was legal in those days for her to put forward one of her servants, one of her maidservants, as a concubine who would then bear children, who would actually be counted as the children of the first wife. This was legal and usual, but it was in direct violation of the one flesh principle that God had set down in Genesis chapter 2. So even though it was common custom for people to do this, it would violate the laws of nature which God had set forth in Genesis 1 and 2. So it was right in the eyes of the contemporaries, but it was wrong in the eyes of God. And the people of Israel, who were the original audience, knew that. Galatians 4, 21-23 says this, Tell me, you who desire to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free one was born through promise. Now Paul goes on to expand that and continue that thought through the very end of the chapter down to verse 31. But what I want you to concentrate on that last phrase in verse 23, the son of the bondwoman was born how? According to the flesh. So this idea that there was pointing to, Paul's pointing there to the fact that Hagar's giving birth to Ishmael was a direct result of something that was not accepted, something that wasn't right. It was a direct result of sin. The will of man, the sinful will of man produced Ishmael, whereas Isaac was a product of Abraham and Sarai's trust in the covenant promises of God. So Ishmael is the product of Abraham and Sarai's failure to trust in the Lord. And you can understand why this is the case. We talked about 10 years has passed since Abraham had came into Canaan and still there were no children. Under mounting pressure, he relents and he follows Sarai's plan. And the consequences of this are very clear in the story. This passage makes it clear that God is in sovereign control no matter what Abraham and Sarah I think. The problem is when God's sovereignty conflicts with our desires. Isn't that so often for us, right? The problem comes when God's will, God's sovereignty conflicts with our desires. So in this case, even though Abraham and Sarai's desire to have an heir was a godly desire, because God promised an heir, yet their method landed them in trouble. So they trusted God's promise. They didn't trust God's promise enough to allow God to bring about that promise. But they sought through their own instrumentality to bring about the promise of the covenant. And there's negative consequences that followed. Isn't that so true for us? We trust that God is a God of justice. But sometimes we don't trust that he'll bring forth that justice so we want the justice ourselves. Right? We trust that God will provide. But sometimes we don't really trust that he'll provide. So we just kind of forsake everything else and make sure we have enough stored up in our storehouses to make sure we feel comfortable. Don't we? 
See, the problem comes is, the, is when God's sovereignty conflicts with our desires. Two, God's grace is magnified in contrast to the sinfulness of his people. Verses 3 through 6, we come to the second section of this passage, and we see the consequences of their decision. In this passage, God's grace is magnified in contrast, and it shows this beautiful stark contrast between God and the way, he, and the way men are. No one in this passage, by the way, looks good. All right, this is one of those passages and other passages in Genesis where we as human beings now, we're like, okay, I don't look that bad now. If we go back to Genesis 3 and uh, look at verses 1 through 14, in that passage, neither serpent nor Adam nor Eve look very good. All of them are rebelling against the Lord. If we turn forward to Genesis 27, we see Isaac, and then we see Rebekah, then we see Jacob, and we see Esau stealing the blessing of the Lord and all this other kind of stuff. And you realize, wow, they're pretty bad too. And honestly, for some people, they get confused when they read these passages. They're like, wait a minute, these people are so terrible. What's going on? They're the heroes of the faith. For me, I'm like, yes, I'm not that bad. Whew. I feel kind of more at ease now. See, Isaac knows that he's supposed to bless Jacob, not Esau, but what does he do? Opposite, for food. He attempts to go directly against what the Lord had revealed to Rebekah. Rebekah knows her husband is the head of the household, and she conspires with Jacob in order to defraud Isaac into doing what is right. Esau is just outright a worldly man. He sold his birthright for a cup of soup. And then Jacob is a deceiver, completely just loves to lie, trick people. And nobody in this passage leads you to believe that they're so wonderful that God just couldn't help but love them. Everybody comes off badly. And it's the same thing in this passage. Neither Abraham nor Sarai or Hagar responds in an appropriate way. First of all, Hagar, as soon as she conceives, is filled with false pride and gloating. She says she despises Sarai now. She's now born Abram's son, or she's pregnant with Abram's son, and she's immediately full of herself and despises her mistress. This is stressed in both verses 4 and 5. And in response to this, Sarai, though, it was her idea, is filled with envy and with bitterness. And that bitterness flows over into false blame against Abram. I mean, from the way that Sarah speaks to Abram, you would have thought that Abram came up with the idea. What is this thing you've done to me? You conceived by my handmaid, and behold, now she despises me. Let the Lord judge between you and me. And Abraham's just standing back. He's like, um, this was your idea, but okay. And then he plays a, like the typical role of like, well, I don't really care what happens. Just do whatever you want. You know, like the guy doesn't want to make a decision. He's like, I just want to keep the wife happy. So kick her out of the house. I don't care. Even though she's pregnant with my child, get, get rid of her. And lays back, just doesn't do anything. Takes no responsibility. And now Abraham knew that was wrong. He knew the law. The same law in this time that allowed for concubinism to be made a wife, allowed for the maidservant to be made a wife, allowed that that maidservant to be returned to her status as a slave. That lady servant was not allowed to be expelled. Because what would happen to her if she was expelled from the household? Nothing. I mean, nothing good could come of it. Left alone, cast out, no family, no belonging, and pregnant. He had a covenantal responsibility to take care of her. But Abram didn't. Sarai was mad, so he sought to keep peace. He says, ooh, she's angry, just do whatever you want. Guys, remember, Abram was supposed to be a blessing to the nations, right? And check this out, this is so cool. Who, where was Hagar from? Egypt. Hagar was from Egypt, and here he was, he has an opportunity, his first great opportunity to be a blessing to the nations, and what does he do? He was trying to cast her out, he was like, I don't really care. Not my problem, even though it was his problem, even though he capitulated to his wife, even though he got her pregnant, he said, not my problem. Now, I love this beautiful imagery here. I love this idea that he's falling back. When you take matters into your own hands, you, said, you start saying, well, even the promises of God, even the responsibilities that God's blessed you with, you start walking away from. 
And he said, I'm no longer going to be a blessing to the nations. I want what's easiest for me. Selfish desires against the sovereign will of God. The whole passage reminds us that there's nothing in ourselves that evokes God's love for us. Nothing in ourselves that draws us, that draws God to him, but it says out of his own goodness that he bestows love to even those who don't deserve it. And his love is made more magnified and more present and real in that contrast. Number three, God cares for those who are defenseless. Let me say that again. God cares for those who are defenseless. We see the results of Sarai's uncontrolled treatment of Hagar. She has to leave the presence of Hagar, and she flees into the wilderness. And we're told in verse 7 that the angel of the Lord finds her by a spring of water in the wilderness. And here we see God's care for the outcast. Though Abram shows no concern for Hagar at this point, God cares for this defenseless woman, and he shows us an aspect of his character there. Though God has great redemptive plans and designs over the family of Abraham, and easily, Moses, in his writing of this story, could easily have been like, well, who cares about what happened to Ishmael? Who cares what happened to Hagar? He could have not told the story, but he was very intentional in Moses' writing. He said, no, no, hear this. This woman fled to the wilderness, and God spoke to her. Why was that significant? Anybody? She's the first woman, other than, did Sarah laugh? <laughs> She's the first woman that God spoke to. She wasn't in the line. She was a defenseless slave woman. But God spoke to her. I love this, this idea of God manifesting himself, this manifestation of God came and cared enough about an Egyptian slave woman that he met her. God comes to God, he reveals himself to her, he blesses her, he promises her protection, he points her eye to the future, he says, Hagar, you have a son within you and you will bear that son and he himself will also become a great nation. So he focuses Hagar's eyes on the future and his promises, now on the wrongs that have been done to her. There's this beautiful, poignant exchange between Hagar and the Lord here. In verse 13, it says, So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing, she said, for truly I've seen him who looks after me. This is a very difficult passage to translate, but the sense is pretty clear. Hagar at this time must not have had a great deal of confidence in the religion of Abraham. Abraham wronged her, and yet the God of Abraham tracks her down in the wilderness, meets her face to face, just as he met Abraham, just like he would later meet Moses, and Hagar is stunned by this. And she says, how can it be that I can live after I glimpse the one who sees me? And the name that she gives God is the one who sees me. And as you know, the idea of God seeing in the Old Testament is identical with God caring. He sees and he cares. Is this woman feels cared by God, the God of Abraham, even if she's not cared for by Abraham himself. He sees her. This idea of God knows her, and God knows her, and he cares for her. And so the Lord himself sends Hagar back to Sarai and says, look, go back to your mistress, submit to her, and I'll take care of you. Guys, with many of us in our own experience who seem marginal to God's purposes, many of us feel insignificant in God's great flow of things. Some of us feel like we're not much, we don't do much, we don't provide much. Guys, I want you to know God calls you and looks at you and he sees you. He cares for you. You might feel like the outcast or the, mis the mistakes even. But he sees you. But not only does he see you, for us, he's called us as God's people to do the same as he does. He called us to mirror his own love for the defenseless and for the marginal, for the unimportant, as our expression of our realization that he has loved us when we didn't deserve it. God calls us to be example of his love to the Hagars of the world. To the ones that feel outcast. Who feel like they're a mistake. 
I love that. He speaks to her. An Egyptian woman, he's a blessing to the nations. He's a blessing to the lowly, to the cast off, to a slave woman who's from another nation. He's, he meets with her and speaks to her. Guys, are we meeting and speaking to the marginalized? Following the example of God. Four, God still calls Abraham to wait. In verses 15 and 16, the birth of Ishmael is recorded, and we're reminded that God still calls Abraham to wait. Hagar goes back to her master mistress, she bears a son, calls him Ishmael, and the Lord told Hagar that her son would be called Ishmael, and he takes responsibility. But I want you to see that after all these working, after all these attempts on the part of Abraham, Sarai, and Hagar to work out the situation, to fulfill the promises, Abraham is back where he started. He's not taking it anymore, he doesn't have the promised heir, doesn't have the promised child. His way ended up in misery. His way ended up leading to not good results. But God still called Abraham. He was still faithful. He still reiterated the promises to him that this will happen. So then we look and we skip ahead and we see that Isaac was born of this promise. When Abraham was 100 years old, which is just awesome, Sarai was an older woman who still had some fight in life in her, and she gave birth to a, a child. And I just love the fact when Abraham, what, is, what does Sarai na name her child? Anybody? Or not the actual name, but what does it mean? Laughter, laughter right? He's the one who brings me laughter. I just find that so hilarious because she's the one that laughed at God. And God's like, did you laugh, Sarah? No, I didn't laugh. Yes, you did laugh. You know, I love that whole exchange. I think it's hilarious because what does laughter mean for us? Right? When she first laughed, she laughed because it's like mockery. Right? She's like, oh, are you kidding me? These old bones, baby? No, it's not happening. And God's like, oh no, can I not do everything? Is there nothing that I can't do? Right? But now she laughs because she's like, look how foolish I was. Still mockery, you know, open up herself and say, look how foolish I was. How could I doubt that God could not do everything? I laugh now because it's joy. I laugh now because look at the source of my joy. God is a fulfiller of promises. And I laugh because I realize how little I really know. I love that. And then we skip ahead to the, the pivotal moment of Abraham's life. Time where I will spend a little bit more of our time. This story is just generally acknowledged to be one of the high points of ancient narrative. One of the best told stories in all of ancient literature. Uh, people have been spending centuries debating all the various levels of this story. This is the story of the sacrifice of Isaac. So we're going to today not figure it all out, but I suggest that we're going to really get to the meat and heart of what this passage is about. And the main ideas and the main theme from this I got from Tim, Tim Keller, which has really helped shape this part of this message. And the two things I want us to look at here is the nature of the call and the lamb. So there's two things, the nature of the call and the lamb. One, the nature of the call. Verse 2 says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. I want you to notice first the similarities that this has between all the other calls God's given to Abraham, right? In Genesis 12, they're, they're remarkable. The similarities are incredible. One says, Abraham is called to go, leave the familiar, leave the comfortable, leave the safe, and just go, right? That's what it says earlier when Abraham is first called. He does it again here. Secondly, he's called then to go to a place I'll tell you about later. I want you to go to the region of Moriah on one of the mountains, but I'll tell you which one exactly later in the future. So he's called to go, he's called to leave, but not exactly knowing where he'll end up. Thirdly, he's not just called to go to a place, I'll show you later, but he's called to offer up. 
In the very beginning, he was called Offer Up a lot. He was called Offer Up his civilization, his, his safety, his status, his culture, his people. Now he's called to Offer Up his son. And when God says, your only son whom you love, he's not rubbing it in. He's like, give up your only son whom you really love. Only son means this is the only one left. Ishmael, his older son, is gone. This is his only son. This is the bearer of the family inheritance. And not only that, your only son whom you love means Isaac had become, most likely, Abraham's emotional center. His everything. So what God, again, is asking that every source that you have, your, your security, your significance, your emotional center, is, he's asking Abraham to offer that up. What does it mean to be called by God? What is the nature of his call? What do we learn about the call of God? What does that mean to be called? Paul in Romans 8 says, God only justifies those he calls. And in Ephesians 1, he says to Christians, the way you're going to grow into maturity and greatness is to come to know more deeply the hope and the riches of your calling. What is Paul claiming? Paul is saying a Christian is not somebody who is just trying to live according to a certain ethical pattern. Let me say that again. A Christian is not just somebody who's trying to live to some ethical pattern, who's trying to live to a moral code, or trying to go to church on Sunday mornings and dresses and acts a certain way. No, you're not a Christian unless you've heard and respond to God's call. God justifies those he calls. You're not a Christian unless you heard the call of God, and more than that, it's not just a call comes once and that's somehow you get related to God. The call keeps coming. That's not only how you get in, you might say, to God's presence, but it's how you grow by rehearing the call, re-coming to grips with the call, to go deeper and grasp your call more deeply. That the call is what makes you a Christian. The call is what grows you as a Christian. The problem is that this does not simply tell us about the cause of God in general. There are some distinct things about this particular call in Abraham that's uniquely horrible, and people really wrestled, deeply wrestled with this particular test, this particular call. See, the traditional approach to this call upon Abraham was this traditional tr approach of the church to the heart of offering a son for sacrifice was to teach the idea of perfect obedience, the morality of perfect obedience. In fact, this story is also in the Quran. The traditional approach of the church, but also of Islam, is the moral of the story is no matter how outrageous and how crazy the command, do it. If God calls you to do it, you need to do it. Obey God absolutely perfectly, and no matter how crazy, how immoral, how stupid the command, do it anyway. And by the way, I'm all for unconditional obedience, but there's a problem with reading the text as only that. If it's all about Abraham's obedience, if the story's only about Abraham's obedience, and I don't see, I have a little bit of a problem with it. I've always struggled with this story. Can I just be honest with you guys? You know, as much as I like to sing the song, Father Abraham had many sons, and I love singing that song. I can't, I struggle with this story. I really do. I mean, I can't imagine it being right for me to offer my son as a sacrifice. Even more so if I look at this story as a picture of moral obedience and moral perfection, then am I to go home and say, in order to be obedient better, I better go sacrifice my son? Honestly, I never really liked this passage much. Tim Keller actually says this. The people who say this is a terrible story haven't really grasped the true horror of this test. The reason they haven't grasped the true horror of the test is they don't know what this command actually meant to Abraham in its historical context. Because of some amazing commentaries and scholarship we have, we know a little better what this command might have meant to Abraham and what it could, what, about what it tends to mean. It's very different from what it means to us. 
the Abraham commentaries tell us two things. First, God does not tell Abraham to murder his son. If God basically says, I want you just to do the most outrageous thing, I just want you to go murder your son, why didn't he just walk into the tent and do it? He didn't ask for that. He caused him to offer him up as an offering. There's a difference. Secondly, we have to realize because he asked him to offer up his firstborn as an offering, the command to Abraham's ears was not incomprehensible. It wasn't crazy. It wasn't nutty like it is to us. If you want to truly understand the horror of this text, you have to understand the meaning of the firstborn. So John Levinson is a Jewish scholar, um, wrote a book called The Death and Resurrection of the Beloved Son. And in it, he explains the, a lot of the symbolism significance of what this means. First of all, you have to understand how Abraham heard this. We have to understand our cultures and ancient cultures are very, very different. We're a very individualistic culture. The ancient Near East, the culture was very family, communal oriented. And we have the tendency to think of our own perspectives. Our hopes and dreams are of our individual success, our, our individual prosperity is the way we operate here typically. But back then, nobody thought that way. Your hopes and your dreams were for the family's success, the family's prosperity. They didn't think as individual, they thought as a family. Guys, I'm the firstborn son, me personally, Lawrence. I'm the firstborn son of the firstborn son of the firstborn son. And even though that culture is probably still, my parents' culture is still more Western than it is even more than ancient Near East, that carried so much weight with me growing up. There was pressures and expectation. I had to carry the name. I had to provide for the family. I had to make sure that we were statusly seemed well in the community. And that's when I told them I want to be a pastor, they were like so disappointed. But either way, <laughs> that was this idea. That was, they, they, they carried a little bit more of that weight of family obligation. You know, growing up, I, I, still, I still remember this. I remember going out with my friends and we go to the mall or something like that. And my friend would always buy like two CDs or something like that. I was like, the music stores, he'd go and he'd buy a CD. I'm like, man, what are you doing? You're just wasting all that money. He goes, oh, it's not my money, it's my mom's money. And I remember thinking, I'm like, what? It doesn't even make sense to me. That's such a foreign concept for me because the way I grew up, my money, my mom's money, we were all one. There was just one pool of money. You know, it doesn't matter if I got a job. In Korean tradition, uh, if a firstborn son, uh, whatever his first job is, the first paycheck you get, you're supposed to actually give to your parents. You know? So I remember I got done with it early. I was like, oh, I have a busboy. Here, mom, take this. Because when I got older, I'd have a better, more higher paying job. <laughs> I, was, I planned that stuff out. <laughs> but in all reality, was, there was this idea of community that's so different, even from what I understand it now. But even in the ancient years, it was even much more extreme. So the thinking, second thing you need to realize as we're thinking about this is the, the idea of law of primogeniture. Now the scholars, this is what a, a, a kind of fancy way of saying, was this idea that the firstborn, the oldest, the firstborn gets all the, gets everything, gets all the inheritance. And here's why. Because a family had a certain amount of land back in the day. Let's just say there was like 12 acres of land. But if you had 12 kids, you divide it all up, you'd only have one acre apiece, and you'd lose all the prestige, the, the income, the, the status symbol you developed. So they'd give one son, the oldest, all the land. So you didn't lose out. Rather than having one twelfth, you have a full. Does that make sense? So it was the firstborn who got everything. The firstborn had to be the benefactor for everyone else in the family. That's how the family kept its place in society. And what's intriguing about this is that some scholars have pointed out in the book of Genesis, God is continually undermining the law of primogeniture. Notice he works with Abel, not Cain. He ends up working with Isaac, not Ishmael. He ends up working with Jacob, not Esau. The Bible is not giving any way, any kind of blanket confirmation to this kind of understanding of society. But all ancient cultures did look to the firstborn as the ultimate hope of the family. 
Therefore, God laid down a symbolic structure, building it on the first board to see something all ancient cultures could understand. And if we've been doing a little bit of work, guys, we'll see this too. This is so cool. Because what God says over and over to the Hebrews and over and over again in scriptures, John Levinson points out, is that the life of the firstborn is mine. I'm going to say that again. The life of the firstborn is mine. The firstborn cattle are sacrificed to God. The first fruits of the grain are always sacrificed to God. More amazingly, God over and over again in scripture says the life of the firstborn is forfeit. For example, the Passover. One of the, another one of the hardest passages you ever read. God brings down judgment on the Egyptians for their oppression and their enslavement of his people. But whose life is forfeited in this judgment? The firstborn. Even in the Jewish people, the firstborn, his life is forfeit. They're going to die when the judgment comes unless a lamb is slain. This is so interesting and symbolic. In Passover, God continues to say in Exodus 22, in Numbers 3, in Numbers 8, over and over, he says the life of the firstborn is forfeit unless you redeem it. Unless there's a sacrifice made, unless there's a payment made. You see, what happens, what the ancients would understand that what we don't, what Abraham realized that we have a hard time realizing is every time God says the life of the firstborn is forfeit, what he's really trying to say is this, there is a debt of sin every family owes. If this makes no sense to you, if this command makes no sense, I want you to realize it did make sense to Abraham. It might not make sense to you now, but just get that it makes sense to Abraham. And listen carefully, if Abraham heard a voice that said, Abraham, go kill Sarah, then, then I'll know you obey me. He would have never done it. He would have been like, dude, why would, that doesn't make any sense. I'm hallucinating. God wouldn't have said it because he would, he would have been asking to do murder. But when he says, Abraham, offer up your firstborn, what he's saying to Abraham, what Abraham would have understood is what the scholars are saying, that it's not incomprehensible because Abraham knew what the ancient Hebrews knew, that there is a God of justice. All human beings fail to live according to that law of justice. We all live self-centered lives. And it's the reason the world is in this mess, that God justice can't overlook it. There's a debt every family owes to justice. There's a debt every human being owns. It's a debt of sin. And in a family-oriented, not individualistic society, the forfeiture of the firstborn was God's way of saying, no one is righteous, not one. There's a debt of sin everyone has to pay. And when God says, offer up your son Isaac, Abraham realized that God was calling in the debt of sin. Abraham was calling, the other day he felt that God was calling in, oh man, I gave up my wife. I, almost, I cast out Hagar. He's calling in the debt of sin that he knew he lived. So therefore he realized the real horror. Here's the problem. People say, well, what did Abraham feel as he was going up the mountain? Was he saying, oh, this is fine because God said so? No, absolutely not. Was he being torn apart? Absolutely yes. Was he confused? 100%. Was he unbelievable pain and agony? Uh-huh. But now you're in a position to know the real horror. Hebrews 11 explains it like this. He says, by faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. The horror was this contradiction. The horror was the, God, the command of God apparently contradicts the promise of God. The command of God is just. Their debt of sin needs to be paid. Abraham understood that. That's why the true horror was there for him, because he's like, yes, he deserves my firstborn. Yes, I need to forfeit my firstborn. The command is just. There's debt of sin that needs to be paid. But for Abraham, the horror is this. The command is just, but he's also a God of promise, and he promised descendants. He promised blessing through my son. So as he's walking up this mountain, the true horror is that he's living in this almost contradiction. The true horror for him is God is just and he deserves my son. I've forfeited him, but at the same time, 
I believe his promises. What do I do? So as he's walking up this mountain, he's living in this, 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 this kind of force coming together of a, of a movable object and an overwhelming force. And they come together and they hit. It doesn't know what happens because he's stuck with a God of justice that deserves the forfeiture of his son with a God of hope and promise. How will God be both just and the justifier of Abraham? How will God be both the holy God of this command? Because that's what, that's what Abraham needs. He's also the gracious God of promise. What's the answer? So Abraham's soul is in agony as he's in this middle of this, this, these questions as he's going up this mountain with his beloved son. And every commentator, every analyst, everybody who reads this thing says the emotional peak the most poignant spot in this whole narrative is this fascinating place where the narrator slows down the action. It's going really fast. It says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And the next morning he gets up, saddles his donkey, he goes, he's carrying the wood, he's carrying the knife. But then it slows down. And all the dangerous stuff he keeps, he's keeping the knife, he's keeping the fire, Isaac's carrying the wood. As it slows down together, they get to this spot and then Isaac says to his father, um, father, See how this, all of a sudden the narration just slows down, slow motion here. Yes, my son, Abraham would say. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answers, uh, what did Abraham say? What pushed Abraham up the mountain? What was he going up the mountain saying, I can do it because it's all about my obedience. I can do it, I must do it, I will do it. He's saying, okay, gotta be obedient, gotta be. No, that's not what Abraham was thinking as he was going up. That's not his heart. That's not what's driving him up that terrible mountain. What's driving up that mountain, what's giving him the ability to go up, is God will do it. God will see to it. God will provide the lamb. What's he saying? He's saying, I don't know, Isaac. Do you know what the word he uses here? It's a literal word. The word for provide is the Hebrew word to see or see to. Here's what Abraham is saying. My son, you can't see the lamb that God will provide. I can't even see the lamb. I don't know how this God of justice will also be the God of promise, but God will see to it. God will see to the lamb. What he's really saying is, I don't know how God's going to be both holy and gracious. I don't know how God's going to have the debt of my sin paid. That's how we'll go up this mountain and still be the God of promise who says through Isaac will the world be saved. I don't know, but he'll do it. That's what it says in Hebrews. He says by faith he offered up knowing that maybe even God will bring Isaac back to life. He doesn't know. He just knows that Hebrews says that God will see to it. See, that's what's going up the hill. Not a, I can do it. Not, not a moralistic, I can have perfect obedience. I'm a really moral guy, so I can perfectly obey God. No, it's God will see to it. God will provide. Thus, they changed the name of the mountain. What do they call it? Anybody? What do they call the mountain, or the place where this happened? Yara, Jehovah Jireh. I like saying Jehovah Jireh, my provider. Anybody? Know that song? Okay, just making sure you guys know that song. He doesn't know what he could possibly but he says God will have to find a way to pay both the price of sin and be the God of promise and grace. Well, for us, we know what Abraham could only hint at or only could hope for and hope in. We know first that Abraham's lamb, Isaac, could not pay the price of sin for his family. Abraham's lamb, Isaac, couldn't really have paid this price for that family. And of course, we see also that the ram was caught in the bushes and I love this. This is the book of Hebrews says. Um, common sense will tell you that 
the, the Second Chronicle says the blood of goats and bulls does not atone for sin. And in Second Chronicles, there's a little spot. This is a really cool thing. It is a place where Jerusalem was eventually built, where named the Mountains of Moriah. Right? So the place where Jerusalem was eventually built was named the Mountains of Moriah. It means a temple then. It means Calvary was part of the Mountains of Moriah. Do you guys see that? Calvary itself was part of the Mountains of Moriah. So here's what we know. The question is, why did God, why did not God, Abraham have to bring his hand down on his son? How could God be both a God of justice and a God of grace and promise? Because centuries later, the father led his beloved son up into the same mountains. The one and only son put on the wood again and became the sacrifice. This is what Edmund Clowney says. And when the ultimate beloved child cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The father paid the price in his silence. Paul deliberately applies this word in Genesis 22 to Jesus in Romans 8.32, where Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? If he believed he was a God of justice only, a God who was, if Abraham believed that God was just, a God of justice only, who was not a God of grace, but a God of justice only, he would never have gone up. He would have just given up. I have to kill my son? He would have had no hope. You know that, I couldn't have done it. He couldn't have gone off the mountain without hope. But on the other hand, a person who doesn't believe in the depth of sin, if he, if he believed only in the God of love but not of holiness, he wouldn't have gone up the mountain because he would have said, I don't owe you this. If he believed in the God of love but not of holiness, he would never have gone up the mountain. If he believed in the God of justice only and not of God of hope, he would never have gone up the mountain, Abraham. See, you need hope and duty. You need justice and grace. You need a sense of this is what I owe and a sense of this is a God of incredible love and incredible hope. You need both to be someone who knows and understands what Jesus did. It's only in the cross that God could be both. Do you see that? It's only in the cross where our heart's desire, our heart's need in this world is we need a God of justice. And when we see injustice in the world, and we see genocide, we see racism, we see murder, we see death, we see all that is wrong in the world, and something inside of us, something innate inside of us yells out and cries out, we need justice. We believe in it. We strive for it. We crave it. That's what allows us to do what is right and wrong in this world. We need a source of what is right and wrong. We need justice. But at the same time, if you believe that there is a God of justice, the problem is that we owe a penalty. We owe a debt for our sin. And so then comes this point, this intersection of our desire for a God of justice, our need for a God of justice, also our desire and our need for a God of grace and mercy. And that's what drove Abraham up the mountains that he believed in the God of both. And that should drive us to the cross. Because if you don't believe in that ultimate sacrifice, you're not going to go up the mountain. Over and over again, I'll say this, that life is going to come at you. Right? Life is coming. Somebody said this earlier in our Next Steps class. They said, uh, either coming out of a storm, in a storm, about to go into a storm. Right? Somebody said that, right? I heard somebody say that today in our Next Steps class. The world comes and takes everything. Everything that you say, this is my worth, this is my significance, this is my joy. Everything will take it from you bit by bit. And what you have to do is turn to God and say, you are my hope. You are my love. You are my approval. 
How do you climb the mountain that comes before you? How do you climb this thing called life? How do you live it? How do you do it? How do you face circumstances in this world? And only when you face it, knowing that there is both a beautiful confrontation of grace and mercy, of justice upon the cross. When we can look at the foot of Calvary, the moment Jesus died, when we hear the words of Jesus, when we look up to the Father and say, now I know. Now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your son from me. See, do you see the beautiful exchange, this beautiful love that he's given is not just that Jesus died for our sins. That's good, that's great. But the fact that we deserved first to die, that our son was forfeit. But his grace was so much more powerful. Guys, can I tell you this, that only when you truly come to this understanding of the depth of your sin and a realization of the beauty of his grace and the depth of his mercy, can you truly answer the call and keep on answering the call? It's not an abstract, it's not just, I'm just gonna trust him. But by the spirit, you have to see Abraham and Isaac going up the mountain was a picture of the price the father paid at Calvary. It has to move you, it has to change you. You have to, from the bottom of your heart, by the power of the Spirit, say, now I know, now I know that you love me because you gave your son, you did not withhold your son from me. You have to believe in the one who, whom, to whom Abraham points, the one who went out into the utter God-forsakenness. You have to see the ultimate offering that changes everything. For those of you who are here today and you don't know that call, if you don't know the call of, that God has for you, that he's, he's given to you, that he's called you to this relationship with him, finding the beautiful confrontation at the cross of justice and grace, I want you to know that that call can be yours. And maybe that's why you're here this morning Maybe this is the opportunity, this is a time where God's calling you to answer. I would love to hear you. I would love to see that you do. That you don't miss out on this opportunity to answer his call and to see this beautiful intersection of justice and grace for you. And for those of us who profess, who believe, who've answered the call, can I remind you as we partake in communion today, that can we not just see communion as just, oh, nice little thing that we do. But may we be reminded of the agony that tore into Abraham's heart as he went up the mountain at the beautiful intersection that happened of justice and grace. And we see that God did not spare even his own son. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in the picture of Abraham, you pointed to the lamb, a lamb that takes away the sin of the world, how we thank you that your grace and justice met at the cross. So thank you for being a God of both promise and a God of justice. We need that. We need you. Please, Spirit, will you manifest yourself so mightily in our hearts that we see the love so clearly and we can say, I see your great love for us, God. And we can cry out like First John cries out, how great is the love the Father has lavished upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.